Hebrews chapter 7. A little break from our study in Hebrews. Brother Dan gave us a message in Jude last Sunday, but uh, we'll get back to our study in Hebrews here. Hebrews beginning in verse 1. And we're going to talk about a high priest forever. And as we continue in our study of Hebrews, we come to chapter 7. And uh, we're going to have some details. Now, we actually... Uh, uh, saw this uh, uh, in chapter 6, chapter 6 in verse 20, where it said, Even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to have some explanation here as to, and details about this one called Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is going to enlarge on this theme, and namely that the Lord Jesus Christ was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's interesting to note that Melchizedek is mentioned in three areas of subject matter in three different books of the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament. You have history, prophecy, and doctrine. The history you find in Genesis chapter 14, where the context is Hebrew history. Uh, The prophecy you find in Psalm 110, uh, that's uh, a context as a Hebrew song there. And then the doctrine is here in the book of Hebrews where he's mentioned nine times. And we've already seen him mentioned twice in chapter five and then once in chapter six. And then we're going to see it seven times in chapter seven. Now, since Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, uh, it's only natural that the writer of Hebrews give us some details as to the character and the meaning of, of this uh, maybe somewhat mysterious, if you please, high priest. Uh, if, let, just let me say here at the outset, there's disagreement among scholars about just who Melchizedek was. Was he a real human priest or was he perhaps a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself? And while we may reference this controversy as we look at these verses, I don't really want to get sidetracked on a controversial aspect of this because I think it is a blessed truth uh, here in this passage. Uh, Many times I think we do get sidetracked uh, when there's controversial things and um, people, you know, sometimes want to argue. They always want to argue about something. So, uh, uh, They want to speculate about something. Uh, And then I think they miss the blessing of what the Word of God is actually saying. So notice, first of all, we're going to look at the character of Melchizedek. The character. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. And uh, we'll find here that uh, uh, we'll see his character. Now, notice what it says. For this Melchizedek, referring to his uh, reference in verse uh, 20 of chapter 6, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. 
Again, Melchizedek appears in the book of Genesis as a character of ancient biblical history. Uh, Remember, it was Abraham's nephew, Lot, had moved into the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, had become uh, involved in its political life, and when a group of kings came from the east and defeated Sodom and its allies, Lot, along with other citizens of Sodom, was taken captive. Abraham, feeling a sense of responsibility for his nephew, took some armed members of his household and they went north uh, of the country where he surprised the enemy and rescued Lot and other men of Sodom. And then returning from this successful campaign, Abraham stopped at Salem. Now that's thought to be a early name for Jerusalem. You can see the connection there, Salem, Jerusalem. But uh, here Abraham stopped, paid tithes to the priest king of the city. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, as it tells us in Genesis 14, verses 19 through 20, which read, And he blessed them, him, and he said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of the heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So who is this Melchizedek? Well, the reference to him in Genesis 14 is the only mention of him in the Old Testament historical books. And we have already noted he's already, he's mentioned just one other time, and that's in the Psalms. He's pictured as the ruler of Salem. The city states of the Near East were frequently ruled by men who bore the title king. And although the Israelites maintained a distinction between king and priest, the king being in the line of Judah, uh, the priest being in the line of Levi, the two offices usually were combined by Israel's neighbors. Now I want you to notice three important characteristics of this one called Melchizedek. First of all, he was a priest of the Most High God. In Genesis, it tells us that Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God. Abraham recognized him as a true priest. And even in idolatrous times in which he lived, there were some who did worship the true God. It would also do us well to note the meaning of this person's name. It's a compound name, uh, Melech, meaning king, and Zedek, meaning righteousness, king of righteousness. Melchizedek was a type of or a picture of Jesus Christ. And also, we, as we said, he was the king of Salem. Now, the Hebrew word Salem, or Shalom, means what? Peace. Right. Peace. So Melchizedek was the king of peace. And again, this adds to the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have a biblical picture of an ideal relationship. Psalm 85 and verse 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, whether or not Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ or not, let's not miss this great truth that's being taught here. You notice that these two characteristics of this king who, if he is not the pre-incarnate Christ, certainly is a type, a picture of Christ. So he's a priest of the Most High God. Secondly, he's a 
king of righteousness. Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 says, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Isaiah 57, excuse me, righteousness, we'll we'll hold off on Isaiah there. Righteousness is an attribute of God. Something that is completely lacking in sinful man. So, we can ask this question, how can we live a life of righteousness? Well, the answer is, we cannot. We cannot live a life of righteousness of ourselves. We can't hope to live a righteous life. Now, that may say, some people might say, well, well then, how can I ever have, how can I ever have uh, a relationship with God? Or how can I ever, you know, they might be in despair that uh, we're not for the fact that God made a provision. Again, in Romans chapter 3, in verse 20, through 22, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. So God does for man what man cannot do for himself. You and I cannot live the righteous life in of ourselves, but God did from us what we could not do for ourselves. God demands righteousness. God provided it through Jesus Christ. Romans 4, 6, Even as David also described the blessedness of man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Christ as he took our sins, was treated as a sinner. He suffered on Calvary's cross, so he imputed his righteousness unto all believers. So he's the king of righteousness. And in that way, he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also the king of peace. Melchizedek was the king of peace as well as the king of righteousness. And one of the names of the promised Messiah was in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, prince of what? Peace. Prince of Peace. Also in Luke 2, 14, it tells us the song that the angels sang at the birth of Christ. What was it? Peace, goodwill toward men. Okay? Romans 4, 25. Who was delivered for our offenses that and was raised for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, peace marks the end of the hostilities. It speaks of well-being. For the sinner, there's no harmony in relation to man or to God. But this harmony is restored by God because Christ made an atonement for our sins. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God, through his ambassadors, pleads with fallen man to be reconciled to God. Christ restores the relationship between man and God, which sin had broken. That also affects the relationship of man to man, but that is the result of the gospel message, which primarily deals with man's relationship to God. 
Now here in, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, again, we emphasize the titles of Melchizedek. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, righteousness always comes before peace. Just as the New Testament, grace always comes before peace. Wickedness and sin prevent peace. In Isaiah 57 and verse 20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast upon mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. You know, people like to use that uh, phrase, no rest for the wicked, right? Well, God said there is no peace to the wicked. Peace in an individual's heart and soul can come only after receiving Christ's righteousness. Christ is first our righteousness, and then he brings peace. 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness. There's righteousness. Righteousness is the root, and peace is the fruit. Isaiah 32, 17 explains it. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. It's only after the wickedness has been removed that righteousness and peace can kiss each other. Now, say, preacher, you're spending a long time on this righteousness and peace stuff. Well, I think it's important. Because when there's fighting in the home and arguing, there's no peace, right? When people do right and they show love and concern for one another, then there's peace. Uh, When a person gets drunk or high on drugs, there's no peace. There's, uh, There's turmoil, there's loudness, there's erratic behavior. But when a person stays sober and clean, the result is quietness and irrational behavior. Uh, When you break the law, speeding or maybe running a stop sign, well, there's no peace because, ah, I hear a siren. You look in your mirror and there's flashing lights. Uh Uh-oh. Don't you love that feeling? Some of you might have that feeling more often than others. But when you break the law, there's no peace. The police officer, the disquieting nervousness, the guilt of having done wrong. But when you obey the law, you know what? The police officer doesn't bother you. In fact, you're kind of glad to see him. He's parked over there and he, you're kind of glad to see he's on duty. And so you go back by him on the, uh, at speed limit and you've got peace and he stays there. and You keep going, right? When there's wrong living, there is no peace. When there's right living, there is peace. See, you will only have peace in your life when you first do what is right. Whether it be peace in your personal life received after you trust Christ as your Savior, you'll have the righteousness of Christ, or it be the peace in your family after you as a parent or a son or a daughter have gone Uh, I've done that which is right according to God's word. Parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, that thou mayest live long on the earth. Do you want peace in your home? Do right. Excuse me. It's all that singing. D-A-Y, right? Choir members know what I'm talking about. Listen, you only have peace in your life when you do what's right. Now, Now, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And we see that in his character. But notice also, a priest who abideth continually. Before we move on to the next point, I want you to look again at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of the days or end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now there are those who say that this verse indicates that, you know, well, that, that says it right there. Melchizedek is a, was the pre-incarnate Christ because Christ would be the only one who would fit this description. I think that's possible, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. By the way, there are those who say that Melchizedek was not that Christ. It just says that this verse really means is what we just don't have a genealogy about Melchizedek. We just don't know who his father and his mother is. Uh, that's a possible scenario as well. <coughs> there, are, It's possible because there are other examples of people mentioned in the Bible who have said to have no mother or father, but we, we know otherwise, right? They did have a father and a mother. Anybody here not have a mother? Oh, no hands? Everybody here had a father and mother? Okay. So just because it doesn't say they have a father and a mother doesn't mean they didn't have one. We just don't have the record of their family. They also say that Christ couldn't be a type of himself. Was Melchizedek really the pre-incarnate Christ? I guess I'm going to have to ask the Lord when I get to heaven. But again, I don't want us to get caught up in that debate and miss the great lessons here. I do believe the important thing is that verse 3 is another picture of Christ. The Lord Jesus comes out of eternity. He moves into eternity. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the beginning. He is the end. You can't go beyond him in the past. You can't go ahead of him in the future. He encompasses all of the time and all of eternity. And so how can you find a man who pictures that? Well, Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, a book that gives a lot of pedigrees, a lot of genealogies, tells us that Adam begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Esau, and you follow all these genealogies on down. It's a book of families. And yet in this book that gives all the genealogies, Melchizedek walks out onto the pages of Scripture out of nowhere, and then he walks off of the pages of Scripture, and we don't see him anymore. So why did God leave the genealogy out of Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek is a type of the Lord Jesus in his priesthood. From the prophecy given in Psalm 110, we see that Melchizedek is again a picture of Christ in that the Lord Jesus is eternal God and Christ is a priest because he is the Son of God and he is a priest continually. That is, he just keeps on being a priest. 
There's not going to be any change in his priesthood. It's going to go on for eternity. In Genesis' account, we see Melchizedek came to Abraham at just the right moment. Abraham was about to be tested and he needed someone to encourage him, someone to strengthen him. And the Bible says that Melchizedek came with bread and wine and he was the priest of the Most High God. And I believe it's most interesting as we as we talk about the bread and the wine, could this possibly be a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to observe here in a few moments? It could be. Melchizedek came and ministered to Abraham. The Lord Jesus is the great high priest, and he ministers to us today. Indeed, if he doesn't listen to you and bless your heart and life, it's because either you don't know him as your Savior, or you're still a babe in Christ, you just haven't grown up. You haven't entered into the great truth presented here. And again, I think that that is one of the points the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. Those who are dull of hearing, remember that? That's one of the perils here, the dull of hearing. And babes in Christ who need to leave the first principles, go on to maturity in Christ. I wonder, that is that your need this afternoon? Is Jesus Christ real to you? Are you living and rejoicing in his blessing that can be new every day? If not, why not? Well, that brings us to number two, the greatness of Melchizedek. We see this in verses 4 through 10. In verse 4, it says, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. Now we see that Abraham was trying to pay, or willing was willing to pay, uh, tithes to Melchizedek. This was a sign of the greatness of the priest king of Salem. Abraham was called of God to go from Ur to Canaan. He had promised the entire land was as an inheritance, but we see him acknowledging the spiritual authority here of Melchizedek. Now I remind you of the context of this section. Remember, that's an important rule of interpretation. That's an important rule of Bible study is notice the context And for a number of weeks now, we've been following the theme that Jesus Christ is better. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And for some time, we've been looking at Christ. Better than the Levitical priesthood. Now, the writer sets forth in a very logical progression, this great truth. Notice his argument, or his defense of this principle. Who is he talking to? Well, what's the name of the book? Hebrews. He's talking to the Jews. Look at verse 5. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. The tithe was normally given by people to the sons of Levi according to the law. The Mosaic law laid down the rules, the acceptable sacrifices, the acceptable place of worship, the acceptable priesthood. And yet it says that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament owes its origin to Abraham. 
Well, Levi was one of the twelve sons of Jacob, who was a descendant of Abraham. Look at verse 6. But to those or to whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Here the writer is going on with this argument and he says Melchizedek was not a Levitical priest and yet he received tithes of Abraham. Verse 7, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Since everyone knows that the blessing comes from the greater to the lesser individual, we can conclude that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and by extension, he was greater than Levi. Verse 8, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth, as I may as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father, then Melchizedek met him. And so Levi, the, in the figure here, paid tithes to Melchizedek, and the writer concludes that the priesthood of Melchizedek must be superior to that of Aaron. And in the same way, back yonder when Adam sinned, I also sinned. In Adam, the Bible tells us, all die. The reason you and I are going to die, if the Lord tarries his coming, is that we are in Adam and we sinned in Adam. However, today I am perfect because I am in Christ. Now, do you realize that? God sees me in Christ. Am I uh, sinless? Am I perfect? That's it. No, but God sees me as perfect through Christ because I am perfect in him. I am accepted in the beloved. Listen, that is the great scriptural truth here. And it's stated in very simple language. We have made reference to Psalm 110 already. And it's actually verse 4. And the argument from a comparison of the record of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Again, we're using a rule of interpretation. We're comparing Scripture with Scripture. The comparison in Genesis 14 and the Levitical priesthood finds further support in Psalm 110, verse 4. What does it say? Psalm 110, verse 4 says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you'll notice the writer quotes the phrase several times. Thou art a priest after, uh, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now look at verse 11. It says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. And so if the Levitical priesthood was perfect... Why reference to another priesthood? Since the priesthood was a vital part of the Mosaic law, the acknowledgement that a change must be made in the priesthood would have some far-reaching consequences. Verse 13, For he of whom these things were spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man giveth attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, and of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. 
The letter presents Christ as our great high priest. The genealogy of Jesus, yet uh, when we've studied the genealogies of Jesus, he is through the tribe of Judah, a tribe which had no priestly responsibilities. How then could it be claimed that Jesus was a true priest? Well, the answer, I think, is clear. The discussion of the priesthood of Melchizedek has been preliminary to this statement. And true, Jesus was not a Levitical priest, but he serves as a priest of more ancient and honorable order than of Levi. Are you with me? I know this kind of deep stuff, but I think it's good stuff. All right? If you stay with me now, verse 15, and it is far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of the endless life. He's a priest of the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priesthood was established under the law. It's described as a part of carnal commandment. Now that's not a derogatory uh, statement there. It's speaking of an Old Testament priesthood. It was divine in origin, but it was only temporary. The word carnal there speaks of that which is this worldly, of this world. And it met the needs of the people of God, but it would not last forever. Verse 17. For he testified... Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is a verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitableness of it. The Old Testament sacrificial system was weak. It was unprofitable. It could not make atonement for sin. It served a temporary function. It was preparatory. It looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ and his ministry as our great high priest. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. This phrase, made nothing perfect, refers to that which was not the completion of God's purpose, but it did introduce a better hope. It prepared man for the gospel. Levitical priests testified to man's sinfulness, and God's mercy, but now with a better hope, we draw nigh to God, and with confidence, that brings us to the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, But this, with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, Psalm 110, verse 4. That is the prophecy of the fact that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be in the line of Melchizedek the priest, as priest. And one thing that makes the priesthood of Christ superior is a very simple fact that it rests not only upon the word of God, but upon the oath of God. You see, all the Old Testament tells us of the tribe of Levi is that they were, going to, uh, they were set aside for a particular function. No oath was given concerning them. Look at verse 22. By so much as was Jesus made a surety 
of a better testament. That word surety means guarantee. I think that word is often misused these days. What's a guarantee? Well, oftentimes we think, well, that's get your money back if it doesn't work, right? (laughs) Well, here's um, uh, no money involved in this. You can't buy your salvation. But we have a guarantee of a better testament or covenant. We not only have a better priesthood in Jesus Christ, but we also have a better covenant. Christ is our high priest. He ministers in a superior sanctuary, a better covenant. It's built on better promises. We'll see that later in our our study. Let's go on to verse 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not... Uh, They were not suffered to continue by reason of death, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I want you to notice five wonderful truths here in verse 25. Notice, first of all, the ability. He is able. We sing the song. He is able. He is able. I know he's able. What's he able to do? Save to the uttermost. Since he's almighty God, there is no limit to his power. He's omnipotent. We see the activity. He's able to keep on saving. The idea is saved to completion. This includes the soul, spirit, and eventually the body. Paul expressed it in Philippians 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not going to quit on you. Are you glad for that? He's not going to quit on you or me or anyone else in whom he's begun the work of eternal redemption. He never gives up on anyone he has saved. The ability, the activity, the assurance... He ever liveth to make intercession. That's another verse for eternal security here. He ever liveth to make in, intercession. This is our Lord differ, how our Lord differs from Buddha and Krishna and Confucius and Muhammad and many others who would, they're either dead or they never existed. They only existed in the imagination of the minds of fanatical followers. Our Lord lives forever. Notice then, fourthly, the approach. Them that come unto God by him. This is absolutely, there's no absolutely no other way into God's presence. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Paul declared in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. For those who approach the Father by him, it is heaven. For all others, it is hell. The ability, the activity, the assurance approach the all. You notice here in verse 25, save them that come. No one who comes to him is refused. He doesn't say, no, you don't meet the cut. Christ has promised, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Matthew 11 says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What wonderful truths in that verse 25. Christ is superior. 
to the Levitical priesthood. Aren't you thankful for that today? And then notice in closing the last few verses here. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of oath which was since by the law maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. The high priest became us. There's not another way of saying Jesus is suitable, a fitting high priest to meet our needs. He's holy in relationship to God. He's harmless, free from malice and craftiness or cleverness. He's undefiled, free from moral impurity. He's separate from sinners. He's like us, yet he is unlike us. And he's made higher than the heavens. He's accepted at the throne of grace and ever loved of the Father. He can be trusted. His perfect righteousness gives him unchallenged rights to the Father's presence. His position is higher than the heavens. Thank God for a high priest. He's able to save sinners to the uttermost. Again, this passage is just mainly written to believers, assuring them of their security in him. But perhaps you here this evening, Uh, afternoon uh, you do not know Christ as your personal savior this salvation to the uttermost will be yours the very moment you receive him and trust him as your lord and your savior there's no exceptions it is indeed truly a salvation from the guttermost to the uttermost no impossible cases with him I wonder is that are you rejoicing in your salvation Are you rejoicing in the blessing of being saved? Are you living in the righteousness, experience the peace that passeth all understanding? I want, you know, looking at this great passage, we should be rejoicing in our great high priest who liveth forever. That which can shake the cross may shake the peace it gave, which tells me Christ has never died or never left the grave. Till then my peace is sure, it will not, cannot yield. Jesus, I know, has died and lives on this firm rock I build. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. The cross still stands unchanged, though heaven is now his home. The mighty stone is rolled away, but yonder is his tomb. And yonder is my peace, the grave of all my woes. I know the Son of God has come. I know he died and rose. I know he liveth now at God's right hand above. I know the throne on which he sits. I know his truth and his love. I hope you know this truth and his love in your lives this afternoon. I wonder, is your life characterized by righteousness and peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven.